continue in this series through the entire Gospel of John. Looking forward to this year in the Gospel. And I uh, want you to, can, to just know something about me. I have never uh, been called to be a witness at court. Uh, I've been called to give a statement uh, of the, even this week of how did your, uh, what happened to your mailbox? And I said, the bus hit it. And they said, okay, that's all we needed to know. Uh, but I've never been called to a courtroom setting where I've been a witness. Uh, maybe you have. But in that setting, a prosecution or a defense uh, has the opportunity to call witnesses to prove their case. Uh, they're going to, in that moment, try to call the most credible, worthy witnesses. Uh, they will have done plenty of research into this person to make sure they're able to speak on stand, uh, to make sure that they have the facts straight, to make sure that there's nothing in their background that will come out that will make this person not credible or worthy. The other side of that is they're going to do everything they can to make this person look silly or unclear or not trustworthy in their words. They're going to try to defame the character of uh, this person. And, and this is how it works in, in a courtroom setting. And in the Gospel of John, what we have is the Apostle John setting out, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, as is pointed out in John chapter 20, um, though Jesus did many, many signs, John says that these signs, these witnesses were written about so that you might believe and have life in His name. And so John has uh, taken the intense task of gathering together witnesses and signs to be able to prove that Jesus really is the Son of God, and that by believing in Him, you would have life in His name. And it's, it's one thing, uh, it would be one thing for the Apostle John just to proclaim, Jesus is God, believe in Him, or you'll be you'll be sorry. <laughs> Believe in Him or you'll be separated from Him in the end. But He doesn't just say it. He attempts to prove it. To att attempts to prove it with witnesses, with Jesus' own signs. Uh, and, and this is what He's doing in our passage this morning. It would be wonderful for um, the Apostle John to have just one witness. But John lays out multiple witnesses, uh, which really comes from an understanding of the Old Testament. In Deuteronomy, the Old Testament says that no one is to be convicted of a crime and no one is to be charged um, guilty unless there are two or three witnesses. And even that idea is carried on into the New Testament uh, in the church. And John is doing just that. He He's not even okay with just two or three. He is going to go above and beyond that, laying out witnesses to be able to prove that Jesus really is the Christ. Even Jesus Himself mentions in John chapter 5, as we'll see in the coming weeks, that there are multiple witnesses bearing witness about whom He is. And, and so when we're thinking through this passage specifically, when we're thinking through this passage as Colton read regarding John the Baptist and John the Baptist's 
interaction with Jesus, this is the, the truth that I want you to leave and take away. I want you to realize that John is a worthy witness of Jesus. And Jesus is a worthy Savior. John, uh, as, uh, and let me try to be clear, I'm going to do my best, but there's the writer John, who is the apostle. There's also uh, John the Baptist in this passage. So I'm going to try to do my best to to note the apostle versus the Baptist. Um, uh, but, but hopefully you'll be able to go with me. But the apostle John um, calls uh, John the Baptist as his first witness. And, and this is going to give really uh, whatever group you fall into, uh, I hope, some uh, encouragement and challenge this morning. If you're not a Christian and you're here this morning considering really who Jesus is, or maybe... Maybe you um, feel overwhelmed by your sin and your guilt, and you need someone to take it from you. I hope you're convinced by John's witness and his testimony about who Jesus is that you would trust him this morning. And if you are a Christian, you've already trusted in Christ I hope your, your faith in Jesus in the midst of a culture that really denies the faith and denies Christ, I hope your faith is, is encouraged and built up and that you're assured of your faith on good grounds. Our faith is not just a fairy tale that someone has made up. It's, it's based on the truth. It's based on uh, these eyewitnesses. It's, it's based on God Himself, and so be encouraged in that this morning. Uh, let's look at it really in two sections uh, this morning. Verses 19 through 28, and then 29 through 34. And again, this gospel truth this morning, John is a worthy witness about Jesus, our worthy Savior. I want us to look first at John the Baptist, a worthy witness. And it's almost as if John the Baptist is called by the prosecution to the stand in this courtroom setting, and they're going to begin to question John the Baptist as their witness and ask him these things. We see that he's called into question uh, by the Jews in verse 19. The apostle writes that this is the testimony of John. Testimony, just a, another translation of the same word witness that we saw earlier in the Gospel of John, the same word that we find all the way in verse 34, uh, as if the apostle John is bookending this small little section with the word witness. And this is the witness of John. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him. So this group of leading Jews, probably the Sanhedrin, is sending a group of priests and Levites, uh, of which, if we know our history, John the Baptist is born into a priestly family, uh, a Levite family himself, but though he doesn't practice. They're sent to, uh, from Jerusalem out into the wilderness to ask him to question him, to put him on the stand. And they ask him this, Who are you? 
who in the world are you? This is a, a question of identity. They want to know who John is. Uh, tell us your background. Like, who, who do you come from? Who do you think you are out here doing this kind of thing? The priests and the Levites would have cared because John is the Baptist. He's baptizing people. The priests and the Levites would have cared about uh, ritual purification. Uh, it would have been the Gentiles who would have been baptized when they converted in, uh, to become Jews themselves. But why were these Jews going out to be baptized by John the Baptist? They wanted to know. And so they asked them this, this question of who? Who are you? And he asked, uh, he answers in verse 20. He confessed. He did not deny, but he confessed. That's the Apostle John emphatically telling you what he's about to say. I am not the Christ. They must have asked him, are you the, are you the Christ? Uh, and he said, I'm not. He, he did not deny being uh, not the Christ. And, and when he's s- saying this, they're, a, they're thinking that he's claiming to be. They probably don't think he is. They're thinking he's claiming to be, and they uh, want to uh, charge him with blasphemy. But he says, I'm, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the light, as we saw earlier in our passage last week in John 1, uh, verse 6. The man sent, there was a man sent from God who was uh, John. He came as a witness to the, bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. And so, John says, no, I'm, I'm not the Christ. In fact, John was the son of Elizabeth and Zechariah, an elderly couple whom an angel, Gabriel, came to and promised that even in their uh, elderly years, they would have a child, uh, a child that they were unable to have before, and that this child would prepare the way uh, for the, the promised one. And John would grow up uh, under a vow to separate himself from the cultural norms of that day. And he'd go on to wear camel hair, eating locusts and honey, and baptizing men and women in the Jordan River. Quite a, an individual of that day and age. He, in fact, looked a lot like some of the Old Testament prophets that you would read about in different dress and doing different things to, to prove a point. But John is highlighting the fact that he's not the Christ. Christ being the the New Testament Greek word of the Old Testament Hebrew word Messiah. He's not the Messiah. He's not the anointed one. He's not the promised one who would come to redeem God's people. And so they go on. Again, John on the witness stand questioning him. Okay, you're not the Christ. Then they ask, what then? Are you Elijah? Elijah was one of those Old Testament prophets uh, in Second um, Kings. You can read about his stories. Uh, one who did some with Moses, some of the greatest miracles confirming that what he was saying was true. And Elijah, though, at the end of his life was taken up in a fiery chariot up into heaven, never to be seen again. And so the thought was, was that, Elijah would return 
And in fact, that was a prophecy as well from the prophet Malachi in chapter 4, verse 5 through 6. The, the Jews of this day would have, under, uh, would have known this Scripture. Malachi 4, verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So then when you get to the New Testament... These Jews are believing that before the day of the Lord comes, the prophet Elijah will return. But when the angel came and spoke to Zechariah regarding the child that they would have, uh, they didn't, uh, the, the angel said this about him, not that he was Elijah, but that he would come in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That's in Luke 1, 16 through 17. And so, when the Jews are hearing about John the Baptist out in the wilderness, dressed like an Old Testament prophet, they wonder, are you Elijah? Have you, has Elijah returned from heaven physically, in bodily form? And John the Baptist says, no, I am not. I'm not physically Elijah having returned from heaven. It may even be that John doesn't even fully understand that he is Elijah, even in the spirit and the power of Elijah uh, fully. Uh, But he says, no, I'm not. I'm not physically this Elijah that you're looking for. And so they question him again. Uh, Are you the prophet? Notice there, capital P in, in the ESV at least. Are you the prophet? This is likely speaking to the prophecy of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, where the Lord tells Moses, and Moses declares to the people, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me among you from your brothers, and and it is to him that you shall listen. And so, not only uh, were they waiting for the Messiah, they were looking for this Messiah who would be the prophet who was sent by God, who would somewhat be like Moses, but his words would be in him, and it was to him that they should listen. The Lord himself said in Deuteronomy 18, 18, I will raise up for them a prophet like you, Moses, like you, Moses, from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so what does John say? Are you, when they ask him, are you that prophet up on the stand? John says, no, I'm not. I'm not the one that you're to be looking for. I'm not the one that you're to be listening to. I'm not the one that if you don't listen, the Lord would require it of you. And so, frustrated as they may be, you can imagine this in the court scene, uh, him saying, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet. They eventually just say, then who are you? Tell us. Give us something. Just quit. Stop saying no. I'm not this person. We don't have 20 questions. We don't have hours to go about this. Who are you? And they they even say, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. We were sent by some. We can't go back empty-handed. 
We have to have something to be able to say. And what do they, they ask, what, are they, what do you say about yourself? And man, this would be the opportunity for John to just let him have it. It'd be like, let me tell you who I am. And just go on about all that he's done and, and who he is, about the prophecy of his birth, about his dad not believing it and, you know, going mute for a while and then him, you know, being born to these elderly parents. Like, he could just go on all of his service to the Lord, all of his sacrifice, but he doesn't. He, he doesn't go into really much about him. He goes into more uh, about who is to come after him. Look in verse 23, he said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. John the Baptist is saying, I'm not the Christ, I'm not Elijah, I'm not the prophet that that you're looking for and waiting for. I'm the voice who's going before the Word, uh, trying to prepare the way. Notice he, he doesn't say, he knows that Jesus is the Word, as John the Apostle made abundantly clear in John 1. And, and John the Baptist is saying, I'm just the voice. As if the Word originated before the voice was speaking it out. And John's saying, I'm just the one that's going before him, crying out. I'm the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 40 Verse 3, a prophecy that when Israel was writing during that time, God's people had lost access to God and were being taken away into exile in Babylon. But God prophesied that there would be a time when the Lord would comfort His people and allow them to return back to Israel, back to Jerusalem, back to the temple where the Lord was. And He would do so by removing all of the obstacles in their way. Isaiah, metaphorically, he said that the valleys would be lifted up, the mountains would be made low, and the uneven ground would be leveled, and the rough places made plain, all so that the people could return back to the Lord and have access to Him. And now John's coming along saying, I'm the voice of one crying out, Uh, He was the one that was sent by God to prepare the way of the Lord for the people to return to Him and have access to God. He's saying, I'm not the Christ. I'm the one preparing the way for the Christ to go out. And John is a credible witness. He is a worthy witness up on the stand as he's being questioned by these Jewish leaders at this time. Just consider Uh, what he's saying in this. He's saying, I'm not the one that you're looking for. I'm just the voice of one crying out. John the Baptist here is showing such great humility in his witness to Jesus uh, as he is coming. John the Baptist, as we'll see, is sacrificial in his willingness to go out and prepare the way to serve the Lord and to, uh, to make a path for people to return, to remove the obstacles. John the Baptist is truthful in that he's willing to tell the truth about the one who is to come and also tell the truth to the religious leaders uh, that are to come. 
You can think of John the Baptist almost as a, a bellman uh, or a grand marshal of, of a parade. Uh, a bellman is that, that person who uh, maybe in England would go outside the gate and ring the bell and say, hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, and then begin to declare uh, that the king or queen is coming or some message from the king or queen or go out into the town to declare a message, uh, ringing a bell, calling all to, to listen. Or imagine a, a, a grand marshal of a parade going before the entire parade, preparing the way for the parade to go, clearing the, the road and saying that the parade is coming behind him, no one comes to see the bellman. No one comes to see the grand marshal. Everyone comes to hear the message from the bellman or to see the one who comes after. Everyone comes to see the parade. The bellman or the grand marshal is just there to prepare the way for that. And that's exactly what John the Baptist is doing. He's simply coming to prepare the way for them. For, for Jesus Christ, the Lord. And so he answers their question of who. Who are you? This question of identity. But they go on from there and ask him, why? Why are you doing what you're doing? And this is a, a different question. This is a question of authority. Okay, so you're not the Christ. You're not Elijah. You're not the prophet. Then why in the world are you baptizing? Who gave you the right to do this? They want to know. They want to understand why he is out in the wilderness, dressed as he is, proclaiming a message of repent and believe, and baptizing people, um, confessing their sins, belief in the coming Messiah. We see in verse 24, in parentheses, at least in the ESV, it says, now they had been... Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. I read this week in one of the commentaries that maybe a better translation of that would be that some of them that were sent were Pharisees. And so in this group uh, that was sent by the leading Jews, the Sanhedrin, both, both of priests and of Levites, there were also some Pharisees. Uh, of which we'll learn about some Pharisees along through the Gospel of John. One of, one of them is going to pop up in John chapter 3, Nicodemus. One wonders whether or not he was with this group that was sent out uh, to question John and put him on the stand. But they asked him, then why are you baptizing if you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? And how did John answer? Again, not answering regarding himself, not one pridefully here, but one of humility. John answered, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. John is trying to get the attention off himself and on to this one whom we will learn is, is Jesus. He, he says, enough about me. 
You want to know who I am. You want to know why I'm doing this. It's not about me. It's about this one whom you don't even know, who's right in front of you, and and you're blind to it. And I'm just calling people whose eyes are opened to it to repent and believe. John doesn't want the attention. He humbles himself in this moment and says he's unworthy to untie his sandals. That is, the sandals of the Messiah, the sandals of the Christ, the sandals of Jesus. And so in one sense, John is unworthy, just as we all are unworthy. He's saying, I'm so unworthy, I'm not even worthy to be his servant. And yet, as we saw from earlier in John chapter 1, God the Father chose John the Baptist and sent him. He's unworthy to be Christ's servant, but he is a worthy witness because he's pointing to a worthy Savior. Christian, this should give all of us hope when we are sent out from this place to be the church in the world in hopes that people might believe and have life in his name. When we go out and attempt to share the gospel, it's not about who you are. And it's not even about why you're doing it. It's about who he is and what he's done. We're unworthy to even be his servants, but the Lord has saw it fit to save us by sending His one and only Son, Jesus Christ, and has sent us out, just like He sent John the Baptist out, to be a witness to Him. And we are, in that sense, worthy servants. Not because of anything we've done, but because of what Christ has done in saving us and what Christ has done in commissioning us and sending us out. And so we ought to be encouraged this morning, Christian, as we go out from this place to take the gospel to those who are in need. We go out as worthy witnesses, not because of what we've done and not because of what we will do, but because of whom we are witnesses to, because we have a worthy Savior who has saved us and a worthy Savior who has commissioned us and sent us out. And if you're not a Christian, please hear me. Uh, Me standing here doesn't make me any more worthy than John the Baptist. We're simply doing our best to point you, just as we, many of us who have believed, were pointed to a worthy and able Savior who is able to take away our sins as well. All of these things happen, the apostle noted, in a place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. And it's interesting that the apostle included that. Uh, But maybe it's just because later in John chapter 10, it says that Jesus went back to Bethany across the Jordan. And you kind of have this, this is where his ministry began and this is where his ministry ended. Um, Not the city of Bethany where Mary and Martha and Lazarus were from, where Jesus would leave this Bethany across the Jordan and travel to raise Lazarus from the dead in John 11 and make his way into Jerusalem after that. But the apostle is saying, this is the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, and this is where Jesus' ministry will end. And so at this point, um, 
you can imagine the prosecution uh, being silenced after hearing John answer these questions, who are you, who are you, who are you? Okay, then why are you doing these things? And John answering this way and looking to the judge and saying, no further questions, Your Honor. I, I can't get anything out of this guy. I can't defame his character. I, I can't uh, get anything worthy of conviction or anything like that. And, and so they sit down, and now the defense gets an opportunity in, in one sense. Uh, to, and the defense here is, I would say, the Apostle John getting to put forward uh, John the Baptist uh, and, and to allow him to even more clearly uh, d- declare who this worthy Savior is. And so rather, uh, where the first section was describing John, who was a worthy witness, this section in 29 through 24 is going to give John the chance to describe this worthy Savior. This is a cross-examining of him. Uh, to ask, okay, you've mentioned this one whom you're preparing the way for. You've mentioned this one whom these Jews do not even know who's among them, whose strap of his sandal you are unworthy to untie. Who is he? Now it's a, a question of identity of this one, this worthy Savior, followed by another question of authority of why is why is he the one? So who is he? Who is this, this one? And here is where Jesus, uh, John the Baptist gives us the identity uh, of the one. In verse 29, it says the next day, and this is the first of several next days that you'll see introduced in chapter 1. It says the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him. And I think if we do chronology well with our other uh, gospel accounts in the New Testament, it, it seems as if that John has already baptized Jesus in the synoptic gospels. And, and having baptized him, um, experienced that scene where John baptized him, and when he baptized him, the Spirit descended upon him uh, in that moment. Uh, We know from those other gospel writers that the clouds opened and a voice from heaven boomed, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And now John the Baptist is giving record of of that account. And, And this next day, after this previous questioning of these Jews, he saw Jesus coming towards him and he said to all of those around, those who were in the water, those who were waiting on the side of the water, those who were just listening and observing of what was going on. You can imagine the scene, John stopping everything that he's doing, stopping baptizing individuals, seeing Jesus on the shore and saying, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Again, taking the attention attention off of himself and saying, look, over there. He's the one on whom your eyes need to be, not me. You need to look to Him. You need to worship Him. And He calls uh, Jesus the Lamb of God. We can uh, look later on into the Gospel of John, and specifically John chapter 5, verse 39 
And Jesus challenges the religious leaders there. And he says this, John 5, 39, you search the Scriptures, that is the Old Testament, that's the Scriptures that were available to them at that time. Jesus says to them, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they, the Scriptures, that bear witness about me, Jesus says. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Jesus will condemn the Jews later for not looking at the Old Testament Scriptures well to be able to see that they're talking about one who was coming. And if we look at the Old Testament Scriptures well, you would see tons of language um, that describe a lamb. And it's hard to be able to tell if there's one in particular that John the Baptist has when he's saying this, or that John the Apostle has when he's recording this. But I imagine many of these lamb pictures in the Old Testament are rolling through John's mind. So when John sees Jesus on the shoreline, he just simply says, Behold the Lamb of God. And in the back of his mind, he thinks to Abraham, the father of the Jews, who when he was given uh, a promised child in his old years as well, was called by God himself to sacrifice his son Isaac. And he took Isaac up on to the mountain. And when Isaac questioned his father about the lamb that they would sacrifice and said, where is the lamb? Father, Abraham said in Genesis 22, verse 8, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they, both, both, they went, both of them, together. Abraham put his faith and trust in the Lord who would provide, either in sacrificing his own son and believed that he would be raised from the dead, or that God would provide uh, a, a lamb in, a, in his son's place, a substitute for him back in the day. Or maybe John the Baptist has in his mind the lambs that were slaughtered in Egypt during the time of the tenth plague, after God destroyed all of the gods of Egypt with plagues and showed His power over them. There was the tenth plague that was to be the killing of the firstborn son in every household. And yet God told His people to take a lamb, a pure and spotless lamb, and to sacrifice it, and to take its blood and to rub it over the doorposts of their home, so that when the angel of death would pass over and strike the firstborn son in every home, the angel of death would pass over that home. It would save that home in a sense. John the Baptist likely has that in mind when he thinks of uh, Jesus who comes so that when the angel of death comes for all who have sinned against God, that He will pass over them as well. Or even a passage like Isaiah 53 that prophesied of this coming servant of the Lord who would come and save His people from their sins. Notice in this passage, 
It says that we are like sheep, but this coming Messiah, this coming Savior was like a lamb. Isaiah 53 verse 6 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, this one, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He says that he was like a lamb that was led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Philip in the New Testament applies these words to Jesus in Acts 8.32. And so with those Old Testament pictures in John the Baptist's mind, when he sees Jesus on the shoreline, it's no wonder that he says, Behold, the Lamb of God. And, sa- and says, In Jesus is all of those Old Testament pictures. It's, those pictures were pointing to this one. He is the very Lamb of God. So then it's no wonder why when John is given a vision of the revelation regarding the end times, he sees a lamb on the throne in Revelation chapter 5, verse 6. He, says, he writes, he records, And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb. Not one slain like back in Isaiah 53 and like we see in the Gospels but a lamb standing as though he had been slain, but was no longer. This lamb of God, John says, takes away the sin of the world. Only this lamb can take away the sin of the world. John will go on to write later in his letter, uh, in 1 John 3, verse 5, He says, you know that He, speaking about Jesus, appeared in order to take away sins. And in Him, there is no sin. This is the encouragement that that comes from John the Baptist on the shore of the Jordan River that day. This is the encouragement that we find from the apostles in their New Testament writings that Only Jesus is able to take away our sins and to take away the sins of the world. And when he says world, he's not speaking of a universalist view of the world that in the end all people will be forgiven of all of their sins despite how they respond to God. No, he's using world here in the sense of saying anyone in the world can be forgiven of their sins without distinction. People from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language, every caste, uh, every, every place that they're born, it doesn't matter. What they've done in the past matters how they respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is why in Hebrews chapter 10, the writer of Hebrews in verse 11 says that every priest in the Old Testament, would stand daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Verse 12, but, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God 
waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected, or he has taken away the sins for all time, those who are being sanctified, those who have repented of their sins as John encouraged them to do, those who had believed on Jesus Christ as John encouraged them to do. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who this one is, John says. He says in verse 30, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. This is a a repetition of how the Apostle John introed uh, his gospel earlier there in verse 15. This one was before John because he was before the foundation of the world, but he also ranked higher than him because he was God. In verse 31, he says, I myself, I did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. I mean, think about what John is saying right there. John the Baptist did not know that Jesus was the Messiah. But John the Baptist was sent by God to baptize people and to prepare the way. And was told, as we'll see, that when you're baptizing and the Spirit descends and remains on one, He it is who is the Christ, the Messiah. That's the one. John's saying, I didn't know this, but I came baptizing, being obedient to the Father so that the Christ would be revealed to Israel. I came baptizing so that you Jews would know upon whom you might be saved. And so John lays out who it is, uh, who is this worthy Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. But he answers another question, which lastly is this, why? Why is he worthy? Why is this Jesus worthy who's standing there on the shoreline? And It says in verse 32 that John bore witness. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Again, John probably experienced this maybe days, weeks earlier, but when he sees Jesus on the shore of the Jordan River this day, he says, behold the Lamb of God. This is who the Savior is. And He's a worthy Savior because the Spirit descends on Him. Not only descends on Him, as the Spirit did in the Old Testament from time to time. The Spirit would descend and then would ascend. Would come down on some to empower them for a time and then would ascend. But the Father told John that the one on whom the Spirit descends and remains, He it is who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. 
And this is what John came to do. He came to baptize with water so that the Christ would be revealed, so that people would repent of their sins and believe in Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who would take away the sins of the world, so that they might be not just be baptized with water, but be baptized with the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would, like on Christ, descend and remain on them, on you, Christian, to empower you to be faithfully obedient to the Lord, to empower you to show and share the gospel to the lost, to empower you to believe and to endure and to persevere all the days of your life. This is what is available to us. Why is Jesus worthy? Because the Father promised Him and the Spirit descended and remained on Him, which too was a fulfillment of prophecies of Isaiah, like Isaiah 11.2. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest on Him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So the Apostle John is laid before us. John the Baptist, who is a, a worthy witness, a credible witness to Jesus alone who is our worthy Savior. He alone who can take away the sin of the world. And if you're imagining that courtroom scene, it's at this point where the defense, having essentially let John the Baptist loose on the stand to say what he wanted about who Christ was and why it was he that we should trust and and be saved, the defense sits back and and essentially says, the defense rests. There's the first of the Lord's and the Apostle John's credible, worthy witnesses of this worthy Savior that John is going to bring before us. He's going to bring many more. In fact, the witness of John the Baptist and the worthiness of Jesus Christ the Savior at that moment caused several of John the Baptist's witnesses to leave John the Baptist and to go and follow Jesus. It caused many other fishermen to leave their businesses, their uh, life inheritance from their fathers to go and follow this worthy Savior. We're going to read about some of the responses to the witness of John the Baptist uh, next week and in the, in the coming days. They believe that John the Baptist's witness was worthy of believing. They believe that Jesus was worthy of following. What about you? What about you? I hope it doesn't take two or three or four, five, six or as many as we'll see in the Gospel of John for you to believe. I pray that this one would be enough and that the Lord maybe convinced you this morning that the witness is clear. Jesus alone is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Would you repent of your sins? Trust Christ this morning and find that your sins are taken away. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west. And know that you have in that moment, though you have yet to be baptized in water, are baptized in the Holy Spirit by the gift of God. And Christian, find great assurance that your faith, like I said, is not just a fairy tale. It is based 
in humble, sacrificial, truthful eyewitness of at least John the Baptist, not to mention all of those that are coming. There's, uh, though, for John the Baptist, uh, in the, as we'll see in the rest of the gospel, there's no witness protection program for him. This, this brother was willing to give his life for this. Not only was he, but so were all of the apostles, including the apostle John, who is writing this. That should assure us of our faith in this Jesus and cause us to worship Him who alone is worthy, but it should also send us out with great courage and boldness to be willing to be a witness like John, a worthy witness, one whose character is above reproach and cannot be defamed, one who is consistent in our witness, truthful, one who's willing to speak the truth in the good times and in the bad, in the easy times and in the hard times. We have a model in John the Baptist. Though he performed a specific function in a specific ministry, when we go out doing whatever our ministry is, sharing with whomever the Lord brings across our path, we should do so faithfully like John the Baptist. We should be worthy servants of this worthy Savior when we go out from this place. Let's pray. Father, help us. Help us as we aim to be worthy witnesses as John the Baptist was. Father, because you sent your one and only Son, who is our only worthy Savior, our only worthy hope for our sins to be taken away. God, I pray that you would open the eyes of some to believe you for the first time this morning. And that they would experience what it means for their sins to be taken away and for the Holy Spirit to be given to them. God, I pray that those of us who have repented and believed, who have experienced our sins taken away and have experienced the gift of the Holy Spirit as we've become children of God, that we would go out um, with confidence, with assurance, that we would step out in boldness and courage to witness, like John the Baptist did, of our worthy Savior. Lord, we may not convince everyone. The Jews who questioned John the Baptist and witnessed Jesus on the shore not all of them were convinced that day. And so too, not all will be convinced as we go out as a church, but some will. Lord, I pray that you would prepare the hearts and minds of those as we go out to point people to you and to prepare the way for them to look to you for hope. So God, help us. Help us as we aim to be confident as we go out from this place. Help us to boldly proclaim the good news of the hope of this worthy Savior, Jesus Christ, who takes away the sin of the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.